What a load of rubbish. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Hi, Georgette. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> What's the news? What's the latest? The latest is it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Yes, yes, we all know that one. Do you feel it? Do you feel it in the air? Is it crisp? Is it snowy? Probably I woke snowy up this morning and the whole goddamn town was covered in snow. Oh my and it's gosh. been snowing all day. All day. It's arrived. Really? It's really arrived. Yes, winter's here. Mm. Winter has arrived. Christmas has arrived. It's absolutely beautiful. So it's fucking cold. That must be really stunning. Very Christmassy. Have you heard any Bing Crosby? What do they do in your town? Do they turn on all the Christmas tunes? Do you hear Mariah? No. Thank God for that. <laughs> They don't do a lot, to be honest, because this town looks Christmassy. As soon as there's a bit of snow, it looks like a goddamn postcard. You know, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm. They do this weird thing. There's a tradition where they have an evil spirit. Like on Christmas Eve, these kids go running around. We've talked about that. And it's actually somebody in like who's blacked up. It's oh, very un-PC. Oh, my <laughs> Very un-PC. Well, it's not quite Christmas yet, Michelle, so just hold your goddamn horses and let me just start this podcast by saying hello, eavesdroppers, and thank you for joining us today. You're eavesdropping. Eavesdropping, actually, no G. No, no G. She's dropping here, they're dropping there, and we're (laughs) all over it. Welcome. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle, and I just want to say... Geordie had some bad news yesterday. Yes. She lost her goddamn iPad. I did. Anyone that was travelling on the Southwestern Line, <laughs> Clapham Junction around 9am, please let me know. You'll you'll know because this episode has the story that is written in there. So if you're an eavesdropper and you found my iPad, please hand it in. I've managed to send a little message to my iPad saying, I'm lost. If you find me, please find my owner. Here's the number. Oh my God, you sound like a lost dog. Like Paddington Bear. <laughs> and I've called all the stations, but no one can help me. You have to do it online now, Michelle. You can't talk yes. to a person. Now, I also just want to tell you, I know we talked about this before. Yeah. I'm a celebrity. Oh. I'm a celebrity. Yes. I'm still obsessed. I'm still obsessed. Absolutely loving Boy George. I've gone right off it, Michelle. I'll tell you that for free. Is that because of Matt Hancock? Mm, I don't know. Is it Matt Hancock? He's a creep in it, I have to say. I'm not enjoying him. No. And I do like Boy George, but what's he done to his teeth? He can hardly shut his mouth. It's completely changed the whole shape. I was thinking about that too because, as you pointed out, he has got a bit of a lisp. (laughs) A bit of a funny little lisp. I think they're not veneers. I think they're false. (laughs) And I think he's he's 61. He's 61, you know. He's passage. not a spring yeah. chicken. <laughs> I think he's gone and got himself a pair of falsies. He's trying to hold those in. <laughs> I've told you, haven't I, that I, I grew up believing that you get to a certain age and you have all your teeth ripped out and replaced with false ones because that's what both my parents have done. Sorry, Mum and Dad, if you're listening. They're not. It turns out you can keep your own teeth till death if you're good. If you look after them. Absolutely. Look, I intend to look after mine because, you know, I've just spent a bloody fortune (laughs) having braces put on them. So, (laughs) God damn it. So, listen, Michelle, we mentioned Tamira 
the modern myth stick last week, didn't we, a few times? And we, we spoke about Tamira.com and we also you also mentioned the Moon Lover's Guide, which you were living your life by. Well, I have to say this week was a lot better, apart from the day yesterday when I lost my iPad. And guess what day that was? When I looked at my Moon Lover's Guide, what was it? It was a bloody 5-8 day. Caution. A caution day. See, you've got to put that iPad on a leash on those 5-8 days. Well, you've just got to be careful. You've got to have your wits about you. Tamira has said, mm. hasn't she, that on those 5-8 caution days, which are numerology rather than astrology, she does it all, you see, those days you have to be a little bit more with it and focused. Those are the days you'll have your little accidents. You'll maybe bump into someone with your shopping trolley and be yelled at or you know anything could happen you could leave your fucking ipad on the train at 9 a.m in the morning next to a bin i mean honestly yes my heart did go out yeah but you know what that's a lesson in life mm. you've got to look at your days on the moon lovers calendar <laughs> i thought it was the lesson was going to be maybe don't try and tip tap out an eavesdropping episode while you're commuting <laughs> on a cheek by jowl packed train in the mornings. But no, the lesson is always read your Moon Lover's Guide. Thank you, Tamira. If I was standing next to you, I would much prefer to be eavesdropping over your shoulder and looking at you typing out an eavesdropping episode than porn. That's what I would prefer. (laughs) Well, imagine when I was doing the research for porn. Yes, I know, you filthy girl. Anyway, Talking about Tamira, it brings me to what we're talking about this week, Michelle, because she got in touch, bless her heart, with some more ideas for a story. So she, in part, has actually inspired the story that I'm going to tell you this week. I cannot wait. I'm on tenterhooks. Well, it's true crime. It's true crime time. It is true crime time. I know it, (laughs) but I have no clue what you're going to tell me. (laughs) Let me begin. I will tell you. Well, first of all, like I said, Tamira sent me a very interesting article, which has pretty much not much to do with what I'm going to tell you today. So Tamira will be scratching her head right now, but by the end of it, she'll get it. So... I'm going to tell you about a murder that happened and I got most of my information from Crime Watch UK. What an amazing program that was. I remember it back in the day, early 90s. It was absolutely crucial viewing, Michelle, and everybody around the country was watching it. Well, it reminds me of Kenny the Koala in the segment. Uh, Every kid was watching that. No, I think I missed it. You probably didn't watch Mm. it because, yeah, I think you turned up a bit later and they did stop it. But I think they should bring it back, Michelle. Basically, for those of you who don't live in the UK and haven't been alive since, have been not around since the 90s. I don't know how to phrase that. Uh, It's a 90s phenomena. It's It's an 80s and 90s phenomena. And It was hosted by a lot of the breakfast TV guys, a lot of ex-anchors of news. Jill Dando, who was famously murdered herself, is actually narrating this special that I got a lot of information from for my story today. That's quite creepy, isn't it? Voice from the dead. It is. But what they do is it's crimes that are happening. They're live investigations. The police work in tandem with, I think it's a BBC uh, production, and they would then dramatise it and re reenact the crime 
And then with whatever information the police has given Crime Watch producers, they release it and then they show the piece. Then they appeal for any information. There's a hotline. And then later in the evening, they'll come back with updates. It's fantastic. Do you think they stopped it because there were just too many crimes? They just couldn't keep up? (laughs) Because I don't know. I think maybe just the way of television you know, viewing just changed, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. It was crucial in getting this case solved. But you'll hear there's a a few twists and turns in this one. We're going to go back to 1993 and it's February. So it's quite cold, a bit nippy winter. That's right, yes. (laughs) Wednesday, February the 10th, 1993, in a beautiful village by the name of Wadhurst in the county of East Sussex, which is an area that I know very, very well. So this murder, I don't remember it personally. My husband thinks that he does have some recollections because he grew up in this area and knows it very well. A couple, newlyweds, Nicola and Harry Fuller, were sadly murdered in their Wadhurst cottage and were found dead by police and Nicola's parents a few days later. Mm -hmm. Nicola was 27 and she'd met Harry, who was 45, only six months before, several months before, let's say. Whirlwind. They had a whirlwind romance and then they got married. So they'd only been married about five months, I think, when this tragedy occurred. Harry was a car salesman. And he was a bit of a wheeler dealer type, like loads of money, kind of flashing the cash down the pub and all that kind of thing. And he used to always brag about having thousands in his pockets and briefcase full of cash or loads of money in the attic and all this kind of thing. So he's a bit mouthy about the money. Nicola, on the other hand, was quiet, reserved. I think she'd worked in a jeweller's in Tunbridge Wells and she was very much a family girl. So when her parents, Barbara and Michael Johnson, didn't hear from her after a couple of days, they began to worry and they'd been trying to call their house. So after a few days, they called her work and when they discovered that she hadn't been in, then they really got worried. So both of them got in their car and went round to the Wadhurst cottage they lived not far away in a place called Pembury which is near Tunbridge Wells Mm. they lived in a rented cottage on the high street of Wadhurst and it was a busy road which took traffic from East Sussex right through to Tunbridge Wells Mm -hmm. and behind the property was a big car park which they had access to which is perfect for Harry and all these cars buying and selling and all that stuff so they turned up they went down to the car park they noticed that Nicola's car was still in the car park And then they went and had a peep through the kitchen windows. Well, there they could see Nicola's keys and her handbag were on the table by the back door. But they also saw Harry's feet sticking out of the utility room. Panic set in. They call the cops. Cops arrive. They insist that they break the door down because the cops are doing the knock-knock thing. And they're like, no, no, just knock the bloody door down. We know something's wrong. So they burst in, found Harry in the utility room and... The police went upstairs, then called Michael Johnson upstairs where he discovered and identified his daughter's body, sadly. No father ever needs to do that, Jesus. They really don't. And it's a double murder. It's very sad. And Michelle, I will say right now, when I finally finished looking at the documentary, there's a documentary follow-up from Crime Watch narrated by Jill Dando that you can find on YouTube. Michelle will link you up. I was in tears. Oh, my God. Because his family... A very lovely family and it really shouldn't shouldn't happen to anyone really, but it's just so sad that what happened to this family. 
So the devastated Johnsons, so Barbara and Michael, the parents of Nicola, Mm. they made a heartbreaking police appeal for witnesses on the TV, which was just awful to watch because the police had nothing to go on except for one fortuitous piece of evidence. For some reason, Harry had changed the couple's telephone number several times in recent months. And in fact, the last time was a few days to a week before the murders. So anybody who rang the house would have to know the couple very well Yes, in order to have the number. But additionally, Harry, for some reason, was also tape recording all his phone conversations. Can I just stop you right there? This is shades of my story. I'm getting weird vibes right now. You got the oh vibes, Jordy. You got the vibes. I got vibes. the vibes. <laughs> well, I hope it's not the same fucking story because I'll be pissed off. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've lost my iPad for now. Anyway, let me go back to what I was saying. What was I talking about? Harry was tape recording all his telephone conversations. Mm. So this is very handy for the police because they didn't have a thing to go on. So one call in particular was made the night before the murder a Steve had rung and had a brief conversation with Harry. They seemed to know each other. And Steve had arranged to visit the cottage the next morning at around 8am. The two men made a plan. So police realised this timeline worked, but none of the family recognised Steve's voice. Mm. The police took the decision not to release the fact that they had these recordings so as not to give the suspect a heads up. So nine weeks later, when they didn't get any further... They contacted Crime Watch and they got ready to air the dramatisation of the events where the actual phone call was actually played and an appeal for information went out. Wow. Many people who saw the programme recognised the distinctive voice of Pembury local Stephen Young, who was a 35-year-old married father of two. He was an insurance broker running his own business and totally against the profile that the police had put together. He had no prior convictions and no known links to the underworld. Okay, but how funny that everyone could identify this guy's voice. Oh, yep, yep. yeah. I came round to that. <laughs> it was very distinctive. It wasn't the Kermit the Frog voice that I just did, but it was a very distinctive <laughs> voice. You can hear it on the link that Michelle's going to put at the end of the episode and on that episode of Crime Watch UK. So... Friends of Stevens, when they saw the episode, I mean, a lot of people rang in. An anonymous person rang in and said exactly who it was Mm. and then hung up. And other friends got in touch with Stephen to tell him about his voice being on the program, but he denied all knowledge (gasps) of it. He said he didn't know what was going on. So then the police came a-calling and he was ready for them. So he was cool, calm and collected. And at first he told them, yes, he had arranged to go and see Harry. And when asked why did he not get in touch with police after he was murdered the same day, why didn't you tell us anything? Well, he he thought there was nothing to report, nothing unusual had happened. But during questioning, it was revealed that Stephen Young was a member and treasurer of a legitimate gun club and had several firearms at his home. So this is the beginning of his story changing many, many times. So they arrested him. They had time, place. They had the weapons. These guys were really doing their jobs. Often we slam the police when we tell these true crime stories. But actually, having watched Crime Watch UK, I really feel like the police in this case did a thorough job. Amazing. So they also had CCTV from the bank manager across the road. There was a Lloyds Bank. And he came across, when he saw the investigation going on, he he said, I think you might find this useful. He gave them the CCTV. Remember, it's the 90s. Mm. It's all black and white and all dodgy. But 
he had a distinctive modified white golf and that was seen on the CCTV matching the timeline. Dude did not try and cover his tracks, not even one little bit. Well, what he did do was drive his car straight away that day up to Norwich. So when they asked where his car was, he said it was getting work done in Norwich. Why Norwich? It's so far away. It's the opposite end of the country to Sussex. And actually, because he's such a flash git, this guy, he's got a mobile phone in his car. Not like a mobile phone because they're very, very new at this point. He had one of those car phones. And there was a call log which showed that he had called the Fuller's house at 10 past 8. The neighbour of the Fullers had heard gunshots at around nine. And it was also found that Young, who was in great financial difficulty, had paid in £6,000 almost entirely in £20 notes the day after the murders. Oh, my God, he robbed them. Because you had said this geezer was like, yeah, yeah, got cash in the attic, cash everywhere. Blimey. He told police that money was savings that he had been keeping in £20 notes. But the forensic sweep of his paperwork, it noted that there was pressure on Stephen Young to come up with a lot of money quickly or his business was going to go down the pan. Hmm. And he'd been asking friends for loans and making notes of who he'd asked and their answers. (gasps) So there was no way that he was saving six grand when he was desperate for a a big amount of cash and he was keeping a shit list and not only that but all of his accounts showed that he was just financially desperate so that money would have been spent if he'd been saving it then there was a big kicker they found a loaded handgun under his children's bed creep come on when questioned he said well you know that's where you know i keep guns (gasps) in the house but why loaded oh i don't know why under your child's bed? Oh. Well, they're not going to find it. Yeah, they no, bloody are. No. <laughs> what if they do? The police felt that Stephen Young was so calm and cool as he explained himself during interrogation that they named him the Ice Man. Well, obviously, you know, prime suspect number one. Yes, they had no other suspects, but to be honest, it was all lining up like ducks in a row for this guy. The police also meticulously investigated the bullet casings and discovered that without a doubt, Stephen Young had fired the bullets that killed both Harry and Nicola Fuller. But Young is denying both murders. And when it finally goes to court, he said that Harry was already dead when he arrived at the cottage that Wednesday morning and claimed that as he left the house, he saw a mystery face at the window upstairs. And then later, he started getting threatening phone calls and that discouraged him from contacting the police. What a load of rubbish. It's a crock. Bullshit. What a crock of shit. Bullshit, crocker. Bullshit. Michelle's calling. So Stephen Young was then found guilty after a four-week trial at Hove Crown Court. That's near Brighton, just to place it for you. He had debts totalling more than £100,000. So it was felt that this was a premeditated and calculated murder by a man with two sides to his character. He's a Jekyll and Hyde who's in the financial shit because 100000 in the 90s, that may as well have been a million. Millions, exactly. That's a lot of money. So after shooting Harry in the back, he then shot Nicola. And I'm sorry about this, guys. It's a trigger warning moment, quite literally. He shot Nicola three times, but she got away to the bedroom where there was a telephone and she made a 999 emergency call for help. But sadly, the operator who took the call thought she was a child playing and didn't call out the emergency services. Oh, for fuck's sake. This is because... She'd been shot in the face 
and it severed her tongue. Yeah, right. So she couldn't speak and she was crying and screaming. She was just about to be killed. In fact, she was killed then. Stephen then put a duvet over her head and shot her through the head one last time. That was the fourth and final bullet. Jesus. But there is on the tape, you can then hear a lot of noise going on, like he's looking through cupboards and things. The phone hadn't hung up and they on the other end hadn't hung up either. No, I think it was probably because Harry was recording the telephone calls as well. So I think their end, she didn't hang up. Mm. Whereas the operator perhaps would have just ended the call thinking this is a prank. What a shame. What a I shame. Mean, they couldn't have stopped her being killed, but they would have definitely caught him immediately. Yeah. A tape recording of Nicola's last moments was actually played in the court, but it was so distressing that the hearing had to be adjourned briefly because one of the jurors was really badly shaken by what they'd heard and didn't think they could carry on. Oh, my God. That's how distressing this was. That's awful. And the family are listening to that as well, don't forget. But eventually, Stephen Young was found guilty of the double murder and sentenced to two life sentences. But that's not the end of the story, Michelle, because one month after the trial and subsequent sentencing... The News of the World broke a story detailing how four of the jurors on the case had a drunken night in the hotel. Now, this is back in the days when if you're on a jury, Mm. you get put up in a hotel. Mm -hmm. You don't get to go home. It's a blanket ban on news and all that kind of thing. And you're stuck there for as long as the, the case goes on. So these guys one night had a drunken night, got out the Ouija board. No. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, I thought you were going to say they just got on the smash and then they were just like, blah, 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 blah. And then the whole thing was invalid, that the conviction was invalid because they'd been discussing. Because you're not allowed to. You're not even meant to be talking outside of a trial. They all have the same information, all the jurors, right? So they're all together. I think it's okay for them to talk to each other. I'm not sure. But anyway, four of them had this boozy night. They got a piece of paper and a wine glass, set themselves up with a homemade Ouija board and decided to try and contact the Fullers, (gasps) which they did. Apparently, they they sat on the floor with a Ouija board. They each put a finger on the glass and asked the spirits for help. And eventually Harry Fuller came through. Oh, my God. I got chill bumps. I got chill bumps. They say that, that he did anyway. So one of these jurors asked the spirit, who killed you? The spirit of what they say was Harry Fuller. And the glass spelt out, Stephen Young done it. When asked how, the glass was said to have spelt shot. The jurors asked, what should they do? And the glass apparently spelled out, vote guilty tomorrow. Oh, well. Whether or not they told the other jurors this in the morning, it's confusing. I couldn't quite find some concrete information about that. But one way or another, it got through to the papers. I think one of the jurors had spilled the beans to the news of the world. After this all became known, the Court of Appeal quashed the double murder conviction of Stephen Young and ordered a retrial. So nine months after the initial trial... The victims' families had to go through all of it again. Oh, no, that's awful for the families. If only they just shut the F up about the Ouija board. Yeah. My it was God. a done deal. Yeah. Anyway, Stephen Young was eventually found guilty once again following a five-week hearing in December 1994, but still denies any involvement. And when he was sentenced, he did call out, 
that I didn't do it. And the rest of the families shouted back, you did, just rotten jail, you bastard. So Nicola's father said that the Ouija jurors made a complete joke of his daughter's death. And he says he still finds it difficult to think of Stephen Young and all his protests of innocence because he's always saying he didn't do it. But I'm pretty sure, Michelle, the evidence points to him being the definitely the guy that pulled the triggers. May I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't think that the Ouija board makes a joke of the death. I actually think instead it's... These people who are clutching at straws, they need something else to really find a conviction or the conviction within themselves to be able to say guilty. They're looking for answers. I don't think it makes a joke of the death. Well, unfortunately for Nicola's family, they did not see that in the same way as you did because of what they'd been through. They'd lost their daughter in a violent way. They'd had to listen to that fucking tape of her dying with a severed tongue over and over and over again. And if you watch this, and I urge you to, because it's fascinating, Mm. and it's very much of a time. Everybody speaks nice and gently, and it's all very kind of grainy, the footage. Mm. It'll break your fucking heart. These parents had such a terrible time of it, and her sister as well. Yeah. Poor old Michael Johnson said that six months after uh, Stephen Young was jailed, they were watching Songs of Praise on the TV. You know, this is how television used to be. Crime Watch, Songs of Praise, which is live church. And it was broadcasting from Wormwood Scrubs Prison, which is where Stephen Young was being incarcerated. And the family saw him there in the front row, singing and smiling, and the family just lost their shit. They called the BBC and the prison governor to complain. They just had enough of it being thrown in their faces. They just weren't being left to grieve and to get over this. And later, sadly, both Nicola's parents experienced massive traumatic health problems that they believe was brought on by the distress of Nicola's death and the hell that they went through. Mrs. Johnson suffered a heart attack several months after Young first appealed because he's appealed a few times, I think, as well. And a year later, Mr. Johnson had a stroke that paralysed the right side of his body and needed intensive therapy to regain his speech and movement, which is an absolute devastation for them. I then went to try and find out what's happened to Stephen Young since. Is he still in prison? But I got a terrible feeling, Michelle, that he was released in 2014. That was all I could find, unfortunately. But like I said, please watch this Crime Watch UK link um, video on YouTube. I've got the link and I'll send it to you so you can put it up for all our eavesdroppers to view. Because it's a sad story, but it's one that needs telling. Well, thank you. That is heartbreaking. But I will show note the shit out of that because I am going to watch it. And also, I think in hindsight, knowing what happened to Jill Dando, it is eerie yeah probably seeing her full of life and doing her job we got a bit we got a bit just having a i've been listening to this fascinating podcast Oh, oh, there are other podcasts. There are. This one is called The Clearing. And full disclosure here, I have not finished all the episodes, but it's really, really interesting because it all begins with a woman called April Blasquio. And she basically says she's always thought her dad killed someone. What? As a kid, she and her brothers and sisters were always moving around. They were just one of those families that would just 
pick up their panties and go, Geordie. <laughs> just like Jen. Just like Jen. Just pick up their panties and go. Transient. Yes, they were nomadic. And one day in 1980, when April was 11 years old, her father, Edward Wayne Edwards, woke up the whole family in the middle of the night and told them to pack up all their shit because they were getting the hell out of Watertown in Wisconsin and they were going now. And like I said, this was not unusual for this family. And every six months or so, and sometimes even sooner, without warning, their dad would come home, they'd have to pick up their shit and move on to the next town with Uh. no explanation. And they were not living well. You know, they were moving to places with no running water and mattresses with no sheets on the floor and no heating and... Was there a missus? Yeah, there was. Edward Edwards? Yes, Kay. Kay was the wife. Um, And and you've got to feel sorry for these kids because basic needs for them oftentimes were just not being met. But they had no choice. They were just always Mm. on the move. And the dad, Ed Edwards, he would say things to them like, Uh, You know, they had to move in secret because he was protecting them because people were out there who wanted to hurt him or the family. So they just had to go and they had to go fast. And it was just how they lived. Thing is, Ed Edwards was no angel. You know, he apparently was charming. He had sort of, you know, he was not bad looking. Like the ladies found him handsome. And he had the gift of the gab. But he was also abusive He was a master manipulator and he was in and out of trouble with the law. And he also, and actually this is really interesting when you think about it, the time frame here. He was born in 1933. He grew up in an abusive orphanage. He started getting into crime. He robbed loads of petrol stations in the late 40s and 50s. And the thing is, he never tried to disguise himself when he was committing these robberies because he told everyone he wanted to be a famous criminal and I think that's really unusual for those times Mm. but I mean I know there was Bonnie and Clyde and whatnot but he wanted to be a famous crim so he wanted to get caught infamous infamous he had told people a career highlight for him would be to get on the FBI's most wanted list and you know what in 1961, yep, yeah, he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list for robbery. Way to go, Eddie Edwards. Oh, mate, seriously, he, he's a real achiever. Goal achieved. Tick. Yep. And in 1962, he was caught by the police and he was thrown in jail until 1967 when he was released. And then, bizarrely, he became a motivational speaker <laughs> because he claimed prison reformed him okay well that's the idea isn't it yeah but you know that he said like when he was in prison he turned from bad time crook to a stand-up citizen and in fact in the late 60s and early 70s when he was often moving to these new towns he'd arrive then he'd tell his neighbors and the police i'm here i'm a reformed criminal (laughs) i just want to be upfront about who i am and who i used to be and he would ask people to forgive his past a little bit oh. like uh, Matt Hancock on <laughs> I'm a Celeb. Just for, I just want a bit of forgiveness. <laughs> people were really appreciative of his upfront manner and they did. 
they really did forgive him and they liked him. You know, like I said, he was charming, had the gift of the gab. And then, to top it all off, he wrote an autobiography about his life called The Metamorphosis of a Criminal, The True Life Story of Edwards. And he released that in 1972. Actually, he had a bit of a, a moment where he was not a celebrity, but... He was well known, you know, he was going right. on game shows and yeah. he was being asked to speak at events and things. And as you can imagine, dude was not reformed. No. He was playing everyone. Like I said, gifted talker, gifted charmer. He was yeah. playing everyone for a fool. You know, he wasn't a reformed crim- criminal. He was just a criminal. He was obsessed with murders. He cut out newspaper clips of local cases of from whatever town that they were in he would sit the whole family down in front of the telly to watch news reports of murders oh. i mean it, literally he'd gather gather the Fun kids for around. all the family god just circling back to april who's ed's daughter okay she always had a feeling her dad was dodgy always when she started to sort of think i know my dad's like a dodgy character but there's something more she started getting all these memories And she started writing them down Mm -hmm. and she started making a timeline of everywhere she'd ever lived and trying to piece together why she had this really overwhelming feeling that her dad could be a killer. Yeah. Then in May 2009, she just could not shake the idea that something happened when she was 11 years old in 1980, when the family had lived in Watertown in Wisconsin. So one night she couldn't sleep. She got up and she went to her computer and she just typed in Watertown, Wisconsin, cold case. Boom. First hit was a link to a police appeal for information about the unsolved murder of two teenagers that happened just a few months before her family had left Watertown. Imagine how sick you'd feel. Oh man, your stomach would just fall. You'd get that cold sweat feeling. The report detailed a cold case from August 10, 1980, where sweethearts Tim Hack and Kelly Drew, who were both only 19, they'd gone missing from a wedding reception in Watertown at a place called Concord House, and they were never seen again. Until two months later, their remains were found in a wood a few miles away. Tim had been stabbed to death and Mm. Trigger... Kelly had been raped and strangled. Oh, dear. Then April suddenly had this weird experience of all these memories flooding back. Her dad had worked as a handyman at Concord House. Oh, shit. Where the wedding reception had been. Oh, no. And they had picked up in a hurry and moved after the couple had gone missing. And she just knew her dad did it. So after a lot of soul searching, April called the police in Watertown and spoke to Detective Chad Garcia, who had worked on the original case. And he told April that her dad at the time had been interviewed because, you know, he'd worked at the venue. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, he hadn't been thought of as a suspect. So April and Detective Garcia sort of had a chat and through the chat, they'd both figured out that it fit for when the family had picked up and left town and it turned out it was the day after he'd been interviewed by the police. Oh. Yep. So after realising that April could have actually phoned in a proper real lead, 
The police tracked down Ed Edwards and went and had a chat. And on the Clearing podcast, it's a really interesting podcast actually because they have a lot of audio on their original audio and they play the recording of the interview. Okay. And Ed Edwards is there. He's just deny, deny, deny. Nope, don't know anything. The thing is, they have a warrant to get a sample of his DNA because a sample of the DNA's killer was on Tim Hack's shirt. But Ed Edwards doesn't know this. So they just say to him, oh, hey, you know, a bit of a routine thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we just want to rule you out of the investigation. So uh, can you just give us a cheek swab? It's interesting, isn't it, Michelle? Because the police do tend to hold a lot of things back that we don't get to hear about. And it's for the good of the investigation. Exactly. You know, they're saying, give us your cheek swab. He won't do it. Oh. And you hear in the background, this poor, long-suffering white K, she's in the background saying, if you've got nothing to hide, just do it. Just yeah. give it to them. So she doesn't believe that he's a killer? No. Hmm. And the thing is, he won't. He won't do it. Uh-oh. So basically, then they pull out their trump card and say, we've got a warrant for this. You've got to, you've got to give it. Eventually, he's forced to do it. Sure enough, a few weeks later, the police have enough evidence to arrest Ed Edwards and his DNA confirms that he is the killer. And in April 2010, Ed Edwards was sentenced and given a double life sentence for the murders, a little bit like your guy. Yeah. You're probably thinking, okay, well, that's that. Case closed. (laughs) Well done, Detective Michelle Margarita. No worries. Cracked it once again. Cracked it, except... In true true crime style, this case just runs and runs. When Ed was first arrested for the murders, he was living in a trailer park in Kentucky. And the guy was not well. You know, he had diabetes. He was morbidly obese. I've seen pictures of him. You know, it's kind of like scary, can't get out of a chair, obese. Mm-hmm. He needed breathing machines. He had leukemia. He had heart problems. So, you know, he was not in a good way. But when he was convicted of the two murders and given a double life sentence, he was sent to Jefferson County Jail in Oregon. Turns out Ed does not want to sit the rest of his double life sentence, basically his whole life. He doesn't want to be in a jail in Oregon. He wants to go back to Ohio. He sends police a letter telling them, If they can get him back to Ohio, a jail in Ohio, where he wants to be, he will gladly be given the death penalty and given a lethal injection. Like he's asking for it. Wow. And if they do that, he promises he will spill the beans on more murders that he has committed. The dude wants to be put to death. That's bizarre. Yes. And the thing is that Oregon doesn't have the death penalty. So he wants to go to Ohio and he wants the needle. Yeah. So he has a strategy. He figures if he confesses to a murder that he committed when he was living in Ohio, then he will be prosecuted there, get the death penalty Mm -hmm. and be moved to Ohio. Okay. Or some version of, of that scenario. So police kind of get on board with this and they go and see him in jail and he confesses to another Lover's Lane murder, this time in 1977, three years before when April was eight years old. 
he killed a guy called William Lavico and his girlfriend, Judith Straub. Now, on the podcast, one of the really interesting things about this guy, Ed Edwards, is that he also, like your guy, he was obsessed with recording himself. And the police have thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of audio tapes that he recorded of himself over decades and decades. He recorded conversations. He recorded phone calls. He recorded his own thoughts, memoiry kind of things. It's, It's all there. And you hear him talking about things. They also have a lot of police interview tapes with Ed. So it's a really fascinating podcast. And one of the police recordings is of him talking about this killing of of William and and Judith. So he basically says it was completely premeditated. He knew he was going to kill William because he already knew the guy. They knew each other and I can't remember from the podcast what it was, but I think it was some kind of sporting team. Okay. Yeah, they were friends. And William would drop by the house when Ed would have parties and all that kind of thing. But... At one of these parties, Ed had gone upstairs to the bathroom and he saw William coming out of April's bedroom. <gasps> yeah. And he was like, why the fuck are you coming out of my daughter's bedroom? And this guy, William, was like, oh, oh, yeah, sorry. I, I went in the wrong room. I thought it was the bathroom. Ed was not buying this story. And he was like, fuck, man, he's messing with my kid. And mm. he kept an eye on William over the next few months and he saw William was obsessed with April and he got to the point where he was like, I'm going to take the law into my own hands on this. And thing is, he knew that Judith and William, every Friday night, they would go to this spot called a lover's lane in Ohio. So one night he went there and basically he shot him. And on the tapes, he says he doesn't feel bad about it. Because that guy was messing with my kid. But he said he does feel really bad about Judith and he has remorse for it. And he says, for her, it was just a case of wrong wrong place, wrong time. But honestly, I kind of don't buy that. No, because he knew that they went there together. So it wasn't a wrong time or a place for her. It's her place and her time. Yep. He was going to have to kill her because she would have seen something. I mean, you know, maybe he could have done it without being observed, but chances are he was going to have to kill her too. Well, what's the the excuse for the other two in Watertown? Oh, he never gave one. No, it's because he enjoys it. That's why he's a psychopath. I think he is a psychopath. As I mentioned before, The Clearing is basically the host of the podcast and April, his Uh daughter April. And both of them are delving into the life and murders of Ed Edwards. And at this point in the podcast, the host just basically turns to April and says, were you being molested by William? And she's like, I had no idea that my father knew. (gasps) And she says, yeah, it's true. Oh, my God. He was. So then the host kind of asks her, how do you feel about the fact that he was trying to protect you Mm -hmm. and you've basically turned your father into the police? Yeah. And she's like, you know what? There are other ways to deal with a pedophile. And so she doesn't have any regrets about turning her father in. Basically, he confesses to this double murder. And then he says to the police, you know, I confessed. Now it's up to you to live up to your side of the bargain. You know, I want to go back to Ohio. Except what happens is he's kind of fucked up because when he committed the murders... The law was different in Ohio. 
and the death penalty wasn't enforced at that time. So he's not entitled oh. to the death penalty. And he, he can't catch a break. Off. <laughs> <laughs> Just kill me now, you know. It kind of serves him right, the bastard. Yeah, but he's just fucking furious because he's just confessed to these two murders and he's getting diddly squat. He's not getting that injection. So this one cop who apparently has known Ed for decades, yeah. he gets involved and he says to Ed, listen, If the needle's really what you want, I can get that. But I need another murder. They know he's got loads up his sleeve. Yep. And I need another murder from a time that's within the death penalty range in Ohio. And this guy knows Ed. There's always been suspicion of Ed for a particular murder. And he says to Ed Edwards, if you tell me what you did to Danny Boy, then I've got a better chance of getting you on death row in Ohio. So Danny Boy was a kid that Ed and his wife Kay had fostered in the mid-1990s when they had lived in Burton, Ohio. According to April, this guy Danny Boy, he was a nice kid but a bit slow. So maybe he had learning difficulties, I don't really know. But Ed took him in because all the other kids had moved out. April thinks Ed was a lazy guy, he was abusive he needed someone to order around and pick up after him you know order him do this do that for me and all the kids had gone Mm. so this was a new slave basically to all intents and purposes it seems that Danny Boy actually really did love Ed and Kay because in 1996 he legally changed his name from Danny Law Glockner to Danny Boy Edwards Mm. and he started calling Ed and Kay mum and dad thing is Ed urged Danny Boy to enlist in the army and he did he went into the army because he really wanted to make his dad proud but he injured himself I think he broke his ankle the army was like okay we're going to medically discharge you from the army this isn't for you he was about to be medically discharged except Ed urged him don't get discharged mate you need to go AWOL so three days before he was meant to be released from the army he actually did go AWOL on advice from his foster father yes but during the time he went AWOL Danny Boy went missing Mm -hmm. with his body turning up in the woods a few months later discovered by a hunter who thought the bones sticking out of the snow were deer bones oh dear and then he saw a shoe yeah apparently Ed was devastated devastated by the news that you know Danny had turned up dead in the woods and there are recordings played on the clearing of phone calls that Danny Boy had made to Ed before he'd gone missing after he'd gone AWOL where he tells Ed he's been at the house he's broken in and he's taken some credit cards and some money and don't don't be angry at me and Ed's there like it's okay son It's all right. I just need you to turn yourself in. Go to the nearest army. Turn yourself in. Except on the podcast, as soon as April hears this phone conversation, because remember, Ed is recording everything. Yeah. She's like, this is a setup. Yeah. Because when she was a kid, her dad would coach her to tell stories and they would go over and over and over all of these stories again and again and again. So when the cops came or authorities came or whoever it was, Mm. she had a story and it was really well rehearsed 
and it was all put together by Ed. Yeah. And she's like, as soon as she heard it, she's like, that's a script. He's recording this mm-hmm. and Danny Boy is in on this. But he doesn't know what the upshot is, that he's for it. That's exactly it. What a betrayal. Yeah, you're right. Danny Boy did not know that he was orchestrating his own death because it turns out that Ed had urged Danny to like go into the army, but he also had told Danny Boy to take out two life insurance policies, oh. one oh. with the army that when you look in the fine print, it doesn't get paid out if you're discharged from the army, oh. but there's a loophole in it where if you go AWOL, then you can get the life insurance and Ed could still claim the money because Ed was the beneficiary. So right. that's why he made Danny go AWOL. And in the phone call, Ed is steering Danny and he's like, you know, tell me, son, there's this, tell me about this guy, Ralph, who's been pressuring you for money. Uh, obviously, that's why you've gone AWOL. And the thing is, it's all set up by Ed. He is mm-hmm. deflecting suspicion away from him onto someone else. What a monster. And the upshot of all this is that no one was charged with Danny's murder. Yeah. The insurance money got claimed and paid out. Yeah. And Ed got all the cash. And the thing is, in hindsight, it does look like Ed set this whole thing up from the start. He lured Danny from the in very all beginning. for the money. Yeah, oh. it was all for the money. And he even says, I did it all just to get the money. Oh, what And a he knew bastard. it was so premeditated. And do you know what? It's heartbreaking. For decades, Ed got away with murder again, again and again and again and again. This Terrible. guy never went to jail until mm. he was 77 years old. <gasps> For any kind of murder, by telling authorities about the murder of Danny Boy. And look, and there were some grisly facts that came out. Because again, like you said, the police hold back facts. And, you know, he he was like, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I did kill him. I know where Danny Boy's head is. Uh-huh. And that was missing. And that was a fact that no one yeah. ever knew. So it was a bargaining chip that did finally pay off. Because on March 11th, he was sentenced to death for the 1996 murder of Danny Boy Edwards. What a rotter. Oh, he's he's awful. He's, he's a monster. Yeah. And he was moved to prison in Ohio with a death date of August 2011. Yeah. Except four weeks later, Ed Edwards died oh. of natural causes. Sorry, April Ed. 7, in prison. So... You think the story ends there. Oh, there's more. (laughs) So wait, there's more. So a lot of people, including Ed's family and me too, they all believe that these are not the only murders Ed Edwards committed. And in fact, after his death, there was a, a lot of cold case investigators. They've all pointed the finger at Ed and they think he could be the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, oh, my gosh. So, yeah, who is basically one of America's most yeah. notorious serial killers who's never been found, who went on a killing spree in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, he, he would be murdering couples, you know, lovers lane. Is exactly. That, yeah. The MO, yep, the MO is the same. And I don't really know that much about the Zodiac Killer in terms of details, but, yes, Ed Edwards's mo and the zodiac killer they all match up and apparently too you know he would taunt like zodiac killer would taunt police with coded letters and 
apparently they think there could be 37 murders oh to the Zodiac Killer's name. Thing is, I did actually hear somewhere that these letters, they have got DNA of the killer. Oh. From the letters. The letter. Oh, my goodness. So, come on, people. Like, cross-check that against Ed Edwards. Uh, Since Ed Edwards' death, his grandson, Wayne Wolfe, has come out and said that he thinks his grandfather could have been the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. But there is a former Colorado detective called John Cameron who is convinced that Ed Edwards was the Zodiac Killer, responsible for, like, a Lover's Lane killing of Patricia Kalitsky and Lloyd Bogle in Great Falls in Montana. Uh, they were both shot in the head, a grisly murder. And the thing is, Ed Edwards was in Great Falls at oh that time. Dear. John Cameron could never pin that murder on Ed. But after he died, this guy, John Cameron, became obsessed with him and wrote a book basically saying that Ed Edwards is the worst serial killer that you've never heard of. Right. He's basically connected dots between Ed Edwards and all sorts of murders. And he says he's responsible for basically every unsolved murder you can think of. From the 1947 Black Dahlia killing (gasps) in Los Angeles to the murder of John Benet Ramsey in 1996. Oh, no. Hang on a sec. (laughs) Yep. He also (laughs) thinks that Ed Edwards killed Teresa Hullback who was the woman that got murdered in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. Okay. Because he reckons in the Netflix series you can see Ed Edwards in the background what? of one particular He's, frame. and It's confirmation bias on his part. He's just seeing it everywhere. Oh, look, it's really fucking tenuous. But the thing is that people have run with it. They love a conspiracy theory. And April does talk a bit about this in The Clearing, but... Like I said, I haven't finished the podcast, so I don't really know what her final thoughts are. In a nutshell, look, I don't think he's the Zodiac killer. I don't think he killed JonBenet Ramsey. I think he could be the Zodiac, though. Potentially, yes, maybe. I don't know. I think April does have a bit of a question mark because apparently he was really obsessed with the Zodiac killer, had lots of cutouts. And he wanted to be famous. Yep. And if he wasn't the Zodiac killer, maybe he knew the Zodiac killer. I do definitely think Ed Edwards killed loads more people than he oh, confessed to. That's a given. And do you know what? We probably will never know how mm. many and who they are. But that's all I got for you. Well, that's enough, Michelle. That's quite enough now, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's your murder. That's, that's your little murder cup of tea for the week. What a murder. What a murderous episode that was. I hope that everybody, uh, well, I can't say enjoyed it, but I hope they could manage manage all that because it's quite a mouthful quite a hefty slice of murder slice of murder cake to go with your murder tea i'll put a link to the clearing you know it's actually a great podcast because yeah. they don't over dramatize they really look at it in a very meticulous way but in a very interesting yeah. way and what also makes it really interesting is that april is there her voice she's a part of it it's live yep. it's unfolding yeah yep and she's like can you imagine my, i think my dad's a killer and then you find out he really was like, oh, it's no good, is it? Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for a great riveting, rollicking story about a horrible, horrible person. Yes, my pleasure. Not really. That's your murder. And this is it for, for your eavesdropping session this week. It is. But you know what you need to do, of course. You must never, ever stop 
What? <laughs> so the thing is, Jordy, you know what comes next. I don't. You don't. I just got it wrong. <laughs> I think I know what it is, Michelle. I think I need to tell people that wherever they are. Whatever they do, they just need to. Just keep eavesdropping. Eavesdropping. What? Eavesdropping. 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 Eaves